even though you had problems, did you still love Kathy? Yeah. Mr. Durst, the letter doesn't explicitly ask you for money, but you agree that the way you read that letter and the way you said anybody would read that letter was Susan was asking you for money, correct? All right. Well, Mr. Durst, where did you get the idea that Kathy was buried at all if you're not the one that killed and buried her? I got the idea that you think Kathy was buried in the Pine Barren from you. And you're telling me that after receiving that treatment, you didn't file one complaint, take one action that you're aware of to make sure that these unethical deputies were punished for that treatment? It would have been my word against their word. Julian was a friend. I had other friends, but none of my other friendships were like my friendship with Susan. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. On Wednesday, September 1st, Robert Durst took the stand for his 14th and final day of testimony. Wednesday's proceedings continued to surprise as Durst faced redirect examination from Dick DeGarren and recross from John Lewin. During his last moments in the spotlight, Durst continued his familiar but mesmerizing pattern of testimony as DeGarren sought to help his client rehabilitate some of his more damaging statements, only to see Durst later continue to spar with the prosecution, utter stunning admissions, and offer explanations verging on absurdity. In order to contrast the attorney's methods during Durst's last day on the stand, we're going to present the defense's examination of a subject back-to-back with the prosecution's re-examination of that same subject. Given the limitations of redirect and recross, the lawyer's lines of inquiry were brief but broad, ranging from Kathy's med school applications to Durst's stay in the New Orleans penitentiary. Most importantly, the questions prompted Durst to reveal more about his relationships with the two women he cared for most, the women he allegedly murdered. That's coming up after the break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Dick DeGarren began his redirect examination, asking Durst about the conditions in New Orleans jails that purportedly led his client to seek a plea bargain with Deputy District Attorney John Lewin. I want to turn first to uh, the area of questioning uh, on cross-examination about your interview uh, with Mr. Lewin in New Orleans. And first, I want to ask you about the conditions you came from that morning to start the interview with Mr. Lewin. So would you please describe what happened uh, to you when you hit the jail um, after your arrest at the JW Marriott? Standard procedure when you get to a new prison or jail is they bring you to the property room. They ask you to undress 
and they give you the clothes that the facility provides. All right, were you asked to undress? That's correct, and that's what I did. So you said that the procedure usually is for you to be issued jail clothes? Were you issued jail clothes? So I said that to the two guards. Aren't you going to give me clothes? And one of them said, you're not going to need clothes, Durst. We are going to throw away the key. So did you get any jail clothes? I got no jail clothes. I was transported naked into, into a cell that had a toilet, a sink, and two metal bunks. There was no mattress on either bunk. I spent the night curled up on one of the, the metal bunks. What was the temperature in the cell? Probably in the 50s. All right, so the next morning when you were at summoned. How, tell the jury how that happened. I heard a male voice shout my last name and he was pushing clothes through the porthole and he told me that I had a legal visit. So when the deputy simply said you have a legal visit, what were you expecting? I was expecting to see a lawyer that was either hired by Steve Rabinowitz or you who practiced in New Orleans. Okay, now, what was going through your mind as to what was facing you in Louisiana at that time? Well, whenever there's an article about prison, I tend to read it because I am naturally curious. Every article I ever saw that talked about prison conditions said that Louisiana State Penitentiary, Angola, is the worst, or almost the worst. That it is the filthiest, and it has the smallest possible budget, and it has the most violence of any other prison in the country. I knew that I'd been arrested in the state of Louisiana. They had found marijuana in my hotel room and they found a gun. So Louisiana state law, I knew, for a felon to have gun, a gun and drugs would be an automatic guilty verdict. There'd be no way I could fight it. What was your fear? I would be in Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola for the rest of my life. How long did you believe you had to live? Two clinics in Houston had examined me when I applied for life insurance. And they both concluded that it was unlikely I would live more than five years. That's six years ago, and you're still hanging on, right? Yes. When you learn, when you're brought into the room, and you learn that it's not your lawyer, it's uh, a prosecutor, Mr. Lewin, and two detectives, what did you think? I thought, when they told me they were from L.A., that these guys 
could get me transported to LA quite quickly. So as the interrogation or the interview went on, what did you seek to do? I attempted to make it reasonable for John Lewin and his associates to conclude that I was willing to make pretty much any deal they offered. And why did you think that making a deal of some kind, any kind, with uh, the prosecutors from Los Angeles would benefit you in your situation that you found yourself in? Well, the California prison system is known for treating its inmates like human beings. If I was going to live for five years, I'd far prefer to do it in the California prison system than in the Louisiana state prison system. Would you have pled guilty to practically anything to get out of there? I would have pled guilty to killing Susan Berman killing Kathy Durst, to killing Martin Luther King, to killing John Lennon, to killing Jack Kennedy. During recross, Lewin challenged the validity of Durst's claims. Mr. Durst, you were asked some questions by Mr. DeGaron and you testified at length about the way that you were mistreated when you were arrested in New Orleans, correct? Correct. You have said that the deputies stripped you naked, correct? Told me to strip, to take off my clothes. You've said that they threatened you, in essence said you were never getting out, correct? Well, they said you're not going to need clothes, we're going to throw away a key. And you recognized at that time you'd already served time in several different prisons and jail facilities, correct? Eight, I believe. And you would agree that you understood this treatment to not only be immoral and unprofessional, but probably illegal, correct? Correct. And can you tell me, Mr. Durst, do you have a copy of any complaint that you filed by either you or your lawyers with anybody in a position of authority at the New Orleans prison regarding this absolutely abysmal and horrific treatment? I'm not sure what the lawyers did was considered a complaint, but I was moved out of the New Orleans Parish Jail and moved to a much nicer facility in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, after three days. So, Mr. Durst, you agree that you had not only your Texas lawyers at that time, but you had local counsel in Louisiana, correct? Correct. And you're a very wealthy man, correct? Correct. And you're telling me that after receiving that treatment, you didn't file one complaint, take one action that you're aware of to make sure that these unethical deputies were punished for that treatment? It would have been my word against their word. Garen next asked Durst about his medical history. As we've previously reported, Durst suffers from hydrocephalus, COPD, esophageal cancer, and most recently, bladder cancer, which forced him to temporarily wear a catheter bag in court. After reciting his client's litany of illnesses in detail, DeGarren questioned Durst about Kathy's alleged drug addiction. 
Through his inquiry, DeGaran posited that it was possible for Kathy to attend drug rehab during medical school because therapy took place at night while classes were held during the day. DeGaran then attempted to use Kathy's medical school application to paint his client as a supportive spouse. Mr. Lewin, I ask you about, and I, I believe he placed uh, a letter of Kathy's in evidence, or at least showed it to the jury. Uh, I think we can put that on the screen, the, the medical school application. Thank you, Mr. Henderson. Uh, and we've highlighted this particular sentence. I'll read it for the record. My husband is completely supportive of my ambition to become a doctor. Is that the situation? Was that the situation? Very, very much so. Were you proud of Kathy? Enormously. In response, Lewin posed an alternative interpretation of Kathy's words. Now, Mr. Durst, you were shown Kathy's medical school application where it said, my husband is supportive of my efforts to become a doctor. Do you recall that? Yeah. I want you to assume for a moment, Mr. Durst, that you were not supportive, that you were abusive. Would you expect that your wife on a medical school application is going to say, by the way, my husband emotionally and physically abuses me, would you expect that even if that were occurring, that your wife would be putting it on a medical school application? If I was not supportive, I don't know that Kathy would say I was not supportive. I don't think that would get her anywhere. She was trying to get into medical school. Right, so you agree, Mr. Durst, that the fact that she is saying my husband is supportive doesn't in any way mean that that was a true statement. She's trying to get into medical school, correct? Correct. And if she would have said, let's assume for a moment that you were in fact emotionally and physically abusing her, you would agree she can't say in her application, by the way, my husband emotionally abuses and physically beats me. She can't say that on an application, you would agree, correct? It doesn't seem to me that saying her husband was supportive would help her get into medical school. Later in his redirect examination, Dick DeGaran briefly inquired about the two phones at Susan Berman's house, both of which Durst claims were not working the day he found Susan's body. The defense then presented Durst with another piece of evidence related to Susan, the letter she wrote to him on November 5th, 2000. I'd like to show a letter that um, Mr. Lewin displayed during one of the past weeks. It's a letter that was found on Susan Berman's computer dated 5 November, People's Street 13. Thank you very much. First, I know that the type is pretty small and it's difficult to read, but first, Mr. Durst, is there anywhere in this letter where Susan asks you for more money? Not that I recall. Let me just read the first paragraph. Dearest Bobby, I just wanted you to know how much I appreciated the two times you helped me and what a wonderful friend you have been, like the brother I never had over the 30-odd years. I'm so sorry I even had to ask you last time and ever. Bobby, you know that our friendship was never about money. I'm so sorry that I've been struggling these last few years, and I hope to see you someday again. Now, let me stop there. Do you agree that this this letter 
did not ask you for more money. It just thanked you for the money you'd sent. I want to show you now what's in evidence, a check that was written by you to Susan after this November 5, 2000 letter to you. May we have that check, please? It's, um, it's on the screen now. It's just the front of the check. I'll show you the back of the check in a moment. But this check is dated November the 9th. That's four days after Susan sent you this email, correct? She didn't ask for any money in this email, did you? No. Why did you send her the, the check on November the 9th, four days after she didn't ask for any more money? I don't know. And now I'll show you the back of the check. Here it is endorsed by Susan. I'll read it for the record. This is the back of the check. Well, I love you, Bobby. Thank you so much. I'll pay every penny. I'm sorry, I can't read the rest of that. And then Susan Berman endorsed. Was this back in the day when you actually got your canceled checks in, the, in your statement? Yeah. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. In his recross, Lewin was swift to point out contradictions in Durst's testimony. Mr. Durst, do you recall when I showed you the November 5th, 2000 letter from Susan, that your response was to say, and I'm paraphrasing, of course Susan is asking me for money in that letter. Anybody reading it can tell Susan is asking me for money in that letter. Correct? It doesn't say, please send me money doesn't say how much money she wants. Reading between the lines, it was the way Susan would ask for money. And Mr. Durst, in fact, your response when I asked you the question, and I'm paraphrasing, was in essence, of course she's asking for money. Read between the lines, look at the letter. Correct? That's what you said, correct? I would accept your paraphrase when I said. However, just a few moments ago, you just testified in response to Mr. DeGuerin's questions that no, Susan wasn't asking you for money in that letter. Do you recall that testimony? Yeah, the letter does not ask me for money. Mr. Durst, the letter doesn't explicitly ask you for money, but you agree that the way you read that letter and the way you said anybody would read that letter was Susan was asking you for money, correct? And you responded to that request by sending her $25,000 within two days of that letter, correct? Yes. Dick DeGarren then gave his client the opportunity to explain an apparent slip of the tongue that occurred during cross-examination. At one point during your cross-examination, you used the term buried, referring to Kathy. Why did you use the term buried? I was referring to what Mr. Lowen 
and told everybody, and I buried Kathy in the crime barn. I was saying I did not bury Kathy anywhere. Lewin was quick to set the record straight. Let's play the clip, please. You are now saying that the point of that was you're trying to get a plea deal, correct? And a plea deal, the point of a plea deal is, is that in the end, in order for your plea deal to come to go through, you have to give us what you're offering on your end, and we have to give you what you're requesting on our end. Is that correct? I never said I knew what happened to Susan. I never said I knew where Kathy was Mr. Durst, there was no discussion about the Pine Barrens or about Kathy being buried at all, correct? In that conversation, I stated that you, Janine Pirro, and others, Joe Becerra even went to the Pine Barrens because that's where bodies get buried. Mr. Durst, isn't it true that this was a conversation about what you were alleging were plea negotiations and that you were recounting what we would expect on our end, which would be for you to say what happened to Susan, and then you slipped up and said where Kathy was buried. Is that correct? Other than the slipped up, I agree with what you said. Well, Mr. Durst, according to your testimony and your knowledge, you have no idea where Kathy is today, correct? Correct. You have no idea how she died, correct? I'm not aware she did die. Right. You have no idea if she did die who killed her, correct? Correct. You have no idea if she did die where her body would have been discarded, correct? Correct. Yet on your own, Mr. Durst, you use the term where Kathy is buried, correct? I don't know what you mean, on my own. You just heard the clip, Mr. Durst. On your own, you were explaining what you thought we would want. And you use the term where Kathy is buried. Is that correct? I think that is what you want. Well, Mr. Durst, where did you get the idea that Kathy was buried at all if you're not the one that killed and buried her? I got the idea that you think Kathy was buried in the Pine Barrens from you. Mr. Durst, if in fact you had buried Kathy and were being accused of doing so, would you tell us? If I had buried Kathy, I did not bury Kathy. You previously testified, Mr. Durst, that if you had killed Kathy, you would not tell us, correct? You would lie. That's what you've testified to. That's what I testified to. So I'm asking you, if you had buried Kathy, would you tell us or would you lie? Well, I did not bury Kathy. Mr. Durst, do you understand the question that I'm asking you? Yeah and you're just going to refuse to answer it, is that correct? Correct. In the last moments with Durst on the stand, Dick DeGaron tried to humanize Durst by focusing on his feelings for Kathy and Susan. Bob, did you love Kathy? 
Yes, very much. Even though you had problems, did you still love Kathy? Yes. Have you ever loved anybody in your life more than Kathy? No. Did you kill her? No. Did you love Susan? Yes. Have you ever loved anybody in your life the way that you love Susan? No. Explain that. I was closer to Susan than anybody with the exception of Kathy. Susan was a friend. I had other friends. But none of my other friendships were like my friendship with Susan. Did you kill Susan? No. Do you know who did? Do you know who did? No. That's what it's wrong. Lou encountered DeGaran's efforts by having the defendant remind the jury of his now familiar, though no less stunning, concession. Mr. Durst, the last area that Mr. DeGaran covered with you is he asked you, did you love Kathy? And then he asked you, would you kill Kathy? And you responded, no, correct? I responded that I loved Kathy. And I responded that I did not kill Kathy. And then he asked you if you love Susan, and you said, yes, you love Susan. And he asked you if you would kill Susan, and you said no, correct? Correct. Mr. Durst, you have repeatedly admitted that if you had killed either Kathy or Susan or both of them, you would never tell us, correct? Correct. Nothing further. It's now time to bring in reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the trial for The New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Welcome back, Charlie. Glad to be here. So today we had the redirect examination and the recross examination. And I was curious about your thoughts on Dick DeGaran's strategy for the redirect. It looked like he wanted to just list all Bob's infirmities and then picked up a couple random subjects, two of which sort of blew up in his face, as I think you said. What did you make of that? I've been puzzled by a lot of their decision-making. He spent almost half of his time today on a recitation of Bob's illnesses. And you could only think of that as a, as a play for sympathy. But what does that have to do with what's going on with all the evidence that has been presented? And then he brings up Susan Berman's letter, which anybody who was paying attention knew what Lewin was going to do there, right? I didn't know why he brought that up to make that particular point, because Bob had already blown that off the table. Bob, very specifically, in spite of John Lewin's skepticism that Susan was asking for money, Bob was insistent in his testimony that Susan was asking him for money. And then Bob, in response to DeGaran, says, no, she wasn't asking for money. Yeah. And then, of course, he focuses on the phone thing and tries to get Durst to say that he only used the telephone in Susan Berman's bedroom that was unplugged. But Bob turns around and insists that he used both. You're right. I'm just not sure why he picked these particular things. The defense has 
repeatedly seem to be unfamiliar with evidence and material in here. I think there were also problems when he brought up the drug therapy program at, at Lenox Hill. Now, we're not even sure there was a drug rehab program at Lenox Hill in 1981-82. Yeah, and our research has told us that there wasn't, that they essentially bought the ear, eye, and throat hospitals rehab program when they took over that hospital. Right. But presumably the jury doesn't know that. But the point he was making, or he seemed to be trying to draw out is, well, you know, Kathy's drug rehab at Lenox Hill was between 6 and 9 p.m., meaning her day job, her nine to five job, she could still conduct herself there. Well, it wasn't a nine to five job. She was a a fourth-year medical student, which meant sometimes she was sleeping overnight in the hospital. She didn't have the time to go there at at 6 p.m., three days a week. These were not the most impactful items, to say the least. Charlie, were you surprised that he didn't spend more time? I mean, aside from which topics he decided to talk about, did you think that he would spend more time with Robert Durst just trying to make him seem a little bit more sympathetic? I was thinking about it the night before. What are you going to do to try to rehabilitate him, to stem this avalanche of information from the prosecution, to suggest to the jury, you know, they got the wrong guy. And I wasn't sure how you would do that, but I do think we got an example today of how not to do it. Yeah. As a podcast host and producer, I was hoping that DeGuerin wasn't going to take the silent advice that I would have given him, which is quit while you're behind, (laughs) because you're only going to get more behind. And I was grateful that he did go another half day and go ahead and ask Bob some questions. But I don't think he did himself any favors with any of that redirect examination. That's for sure. Brittany, what did you make of Lewin's recross of Bob? I think Lewin ended on a high note. You know, I think by going back to the jailhouse call with Debbie and his previous testimony about knowing where Kathy was buried really helped make his point. You know, I think it would have been unrealistic to expect Durst to come right out and confess. But what Lewin has done over the course of all these many days is show him to be an unreliable narrator of his own story. And when Bob went back and used the same strategy of just trying to explain his way out of these very damning things he said, I think that's telling. And I can only imagine that the jury sees that too. Oh, I I agree. It was very precise and it didn't take that long. You know, and I loved when Lewin asked Durst if he really thought Kathy would include in her application that her husband was emotionally and physically abusive, like that was going to happen. Yeah. At the end, I thought it was a, a, a nice little ending. He said, so Bob, you have repeatedly admitted that if you had killed Kathy or Susan or both of them, You would never tell us, correct? And Bob's one-word response, correct. Well, I think that's a good place to end today's episode. We will continue to follow this trial as we go through closing arguments and as we cover the jury deliberation and the aftermath of the jury deliberation, the verdict and post-verdict events. So stay tuned for the next episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of season 2 of Jury Duty: The Trial of Robert Durst by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from season one. And head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written by Molly Miller. It was edited by Molly Miller and Alexis Bartolo, with help from Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Molly Miller, Alexis Notovartolo, and Brittany Bookbinder. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.